Carson. Okay, so on today's episode, we're <laughs> going to be talking about uh, whether or not palliative care is depressing. So as per our last episode, um, this is Amani, Abdul Razak speaking. Allison, um, the old palliative care physician. The wise. <laughs> Jody, the pharmacist. And Amanda, also a palliative care physician. And ICU doctor. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> well, here's the thing, Imani. I go to a party, and for many, many years, I would lie about what I did. So oh, I really? Would, yeah, I would. I would. Uh, I didn't. I mean, I've heard other doctors lie, you know, like they'd say they were legal secretaries or something because they <laughs> didn't want to give out doctor advice. But honestly, the reason I lied is because if I ever did tell someone that I was in palliative care, they would either kind of back slowly away... <laughs> uh, or they would uh, kind of look at me, kind of like with a, you know, how they'd look at a sad puppy and say, <laughs> that takes a very special person. <laughs> and I just felt like it wasn't really a welcome topic for everyday conversation. I totally agree. I certainly get those responses, mm-hmm. but I kind of, I must be a sucker for punishment because I always tell people that I work in palliative. Mm-hmm. I like to see them squirm a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I, I as the pharmacist, I also get the, well, you get to deal with the really good drugs. So I also get mm-hmm. to deal with that. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So that's always a little bit awkward. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other situation where people will ask me, uh, I'll, I'll have the question put to me, how do you do this job? And that's actually from patients and patients' families. Usually patients' families yeah. after we've had a difficult conversation. Yeah. And they just look at me and say, I don't know how you do this job. And and that one I find harder because I feel like they're in it with me. Mm-hmm. Um, they're experiencing something very, very difficult. And they know I'm there with them experiencing it. Mm-hmm. And it's almost a way of saying, wow, this is so painful. I don't know how you are enduring this pain that I'm feeling. I agree. <clears throat> I get that reaction a lot. Not a lot, but I've gotten it before from patients, family members. Yeah, and it's often after that long, drawn-out family meeting where you think, oh, good, you know, we've been able to cover some good ground or, you know, we've been able to come to terms with some things. And then you get that kind of comment in the end. And I think, yeah, maybe I'm not sure how I feel about that. I, I do. I agree with you. I feel like we're in it together. And um, maybe part of me wishes that they saw some of the positive side, but that's not my business or place because obviously this is like their life and going through a very difficult time in their lives Um, well why don't we start with how we respond when we're in a social situation Mm -hmm. so Amanda what what do you respond to people when you tell them you're in palliative care and they ask you isn't it a depressing um I guess I often say things like um I don't I don't find it depressing there are some things about it that that can be hard there are also some things that can be very kind of rewarding and you can see a lot of benefits for for people as a result of this type of work so I think it can be a bit of both at times mm-hmm. and what do you say Jody? I my response is always I start to talk about our team we've got such a fantastic team that we all kind of hold each other up mm-hmm. and then certainly there's you know, some cases that are harder than others that you take home a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but the team always kind of helps you take on some of that burden. Yeah, I agree. It's such a huge support. 
I kind of have, so this is Amani here, I kind of have what I say, and then I have what I wish I could say, yeah. which isn't always, you know, like, mm-hmm. appropriate in the moment, but, but what I say is, I've worked outside of palliative care in the past, as a hosp- in hospital medicine, like general hospital medicine, and I found that quite um, depressing, actually, more depressing than my palliative care work, because people often weren't necessarily coming to terms with their limited life expectancy, perhaps family members didn't know. And so there wasn't a lot of that, you you know, when we see in palliative care, often families rallying around our patients and um, honoring their life and loving on them. And, and, you know, that feels really good. Oftentimes outside and outside of palliative care, when I used to work in general medicine, I didn't necessarily see that just because people weren't aware and families weren't aware. Oftentimes I didn't have the time to give people the support I wanted. I didn't have the skill set necessarily before I did my palliative care training um, to provide them what I wanted to, and I didn't have the multidisciplinary team. Um, so there's that piece. But And what I wish I could say is the problem is that we think death is a failure in medicine. Yeah. Even when you go into medical school, you think we're going to heal, we're healers, we're going to heal everybody. Modern medicine is about cure and life prolongation. And then you get a rude awakening at some point where you're like, oh, you know what? Like, we're actually not that great (laughs) at curing. Sadly, it's sad but true. Like, we're not that great at curing a lot of diseases. And so death is inevitable for the mass majority of cases. Oh, for everybody. Well, everybody. Uh, But for the mass majority of cases that we see, oftentimes they're not curable conditions. And so then coming to terms with death and what we can do to support people to live fully in spite of knowledge of death. Yeah, looming um, is a different story. And Amani, I think that sounds like an amazing thing to say. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious, why do you feel like you can't say that as your response? Because mm-hmm. you said that, that you... I I don't know. Part of me, maybe I, sh- I really shouldn't think of it as taboo, but I don't know. That I feel like sometimes maybe society isn't ready to hear it, or that's my perception. I don't know if any of this resonates with you guys, but... I don't feel that people want to hear necessarily how poorly modern medicine performs no, in, in a lot of circumstances, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe people need to hear that. Yeah, I think it would be mm-hmm. important to help in terms of expectations because I think that so many people have certain expectations of what we can achieve in modern medicine, and perhaps that might lead into some of the suffering that we see when things don't go perhaps as hoped or is expected mm-hmm. yeah. totally interesting coming from you Amanda as an ICU doc because I remember when I first met you and at the time I had met uh, Dr. James Downer recently as well another ICU doc who does palliative care and I thought huh like why are these ICU docs doing palliative care it seems to me opposite ends of the spe- spectrum I remember thinking the same thing and when I talked <laughs> to you you said actually it's not that different so I don't know you know what you saw in ICU you know, if that made you think like palliative care is really important here, if you could share that. I think it's um, probably as I see it that I guess what we talk about often now is sort of that palliative approach to care Mm -hmm. where it's not only sort of you have to be a palliative care specialist to be able to integrate these types of palliative care approaches into your practice anyone is able to integrate it into their practice. And I think that has a huge benefit for patients so, uh, and their families as well. So even if 
the person's goal is is to have all these life-saving treatments there are many things that you can incorporate into their care to be able to provide sort of that supportive approach and focusing on sort of the whole person as opposed to only sort of the biomedical side of of things as well and so I think that ICU really lends itself well to that because people are often in sort of crisis situations and there's a lot of suffering around that and if you're able to include some of these supportive principles into that care it can really benefit them and and their families whether they're on the track of sort of ongoing improvement or whether it is looking like more headed towards end of life so I think you can incorporate those that type of care along the spectrum of Mm -hmm. of everybody can benefit from palliative care yeah do you find palliative care more depressing than your ICU work uh not at all again I think that a lot of palliative care also happens in the in the ICU and um, myself and some of my colleagues find that the end of life situations can actually sometimes be pretty rewarding and helps bring patients and their families together as well. I had this one patient that I was looking after a couple of years ago and he had just been diagnosed with ALS a few weeks before and then recently pancreatic cancer and he mm-hmm. came to the ICU because mm-hmm. yeah he was having some difficulty with his breathing with the ALS and we were trying some non-invasive um, things to help with with his breathing and things were were getting worse and he decided after some conversation that we were having with him and his family at the bedside that he didn't want to go on machines and life support and that kind of thing and so we um, turned to conversations well what things are important to you at this time and and what would you like to see happen or how would you like to live the the days um, and hours that you have left and he was talking about how he really missed being able to eat and he um, really missed kind of being at home and so we started kind of talking about well what might be possible in the time that you have left and so him and his family was they were talking about like oh I just wish I could you know have some chocolate ice cream again I mm-hmm. wish we could just have pizza and maybe it's like amazing like simple pleasures right oh, yeah. exactly that would be me too yeah bring me the food yeah yeah and spend spend like one more day at home and so yeah it was it was neat how they kind of all came together and talking and brainstorming about like what is this one good day going to look like mm-hmm. for him that that he can have and how can we make that happen and it kind of got them all excited and energized despite sort of the tragedy of the situation that they were finding themselves in that's beautiful yeah I think food will always bring people together I think that's the <laughs> yeah. message, key message yeah. but we it, brought my grandpa AMW uh, cheeseburgers the day before he died uh-huh. Yeah, the number of people that want to go to Peter's drive-in. True, very true. I mean, I think that's a beautiful story because the alternative, if the palliative approach wasn't taken, may have been that this person would have possibly died unexpectedly, quote-unquote, because, you know, a good conversation may have not happened. He may have not been surrounded by loved ones and family. He may have been put on all the machines. Yeah, right. right? And something he didn't want. Right. And so that's depressing, right? So Mm -hmm. so palliative care is countering that. Yeah, Yeah. just finding what's possible. Exactly. I think the other piece for me is the connection that can happen. I spent, I think, about a decade in family practice, which is a very challenging area of medicine and um, can do a lot of good. (laughs) You know, you can forge very strong relationships with patients over time. But for me, what happens in palliative care is you have to forge that connection very quickly because there's a crisis. Mm -hmm. And it almost reminds me of, I do a lot of outdoor stuff. It's like going on a canoe trip with someone. Like you, 
maybe you're only on that trip for a week, but you go through a lot in that week mm-hmm. and, and you that. That come out of that it. feeling really close to them. And sometimes I've thought that that it's both the beauty and the terror of palliative care because you have that connection and it's life affirming and you feel good about people and humanity and wonderful about this connection you made with that person. But on the other hand, it does hurt because you really connected to that person and you know in the end um, that they're going to go away. Uh, And that's something I've struggled with a bit is almost the more I connect, which is almost, you know, the more I'm I'm probably effective for that person, sometimes the bigger piece of me it will take. Totally agree. I totally agree. The, the cases that linger with me that I that pop in my mind over and over again are the ones that I was the most entrenched in and that were messy and just took a lot, right, of, of work. Um, but you've got to spend all that time connecting with somebody and really getting to know them. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's why it can be uh, a very interesting specialty mm-hmm. for medical students because they're often close enough to that beginning enthusiasm of why they went into medicine And often there were reasons that were about people and helping people. And Mm -hmm. sometimes that gets a little lost when you're in the middle of a hospital rotation with, you know, 20 patients you're looking at. Reciting the labs and what's the differential, and and which is all very important stuff, but it's not the humanistic side necessarily. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think what you said about it being life-affirming really strikes, strikes a chord with me. Because I feel a lot of gratitude as well because of my work in palliative care. And that's not, I don't mean that in a harsh way to say, oh, these people went through something difficult and yay me, I'm not mm-hmm. going through that. Because we all will go through suffering in our lives, have, have gone through suffering probably and will. You know, just I think that's part of the human condition yeah. as, the, as in Buddhist, you know, <laughs> tradition. But it's still, it's perspective giving. Yeah, picking up on that gratitude thing, like, um, I totally understand what you're talking about. Just a, almost like a, just a gratitude for life and what you've got. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the people who won't tell you their age or get all upset, like, oh, I'm turning such and such. I can't believe it. Like, I'm, like, truthfully, I'm just thankful for every single year yeah. that I get because yeah, that's... And you realize how precious life is you right? do yeah i mean you get yeah. you get a little that's a little flowery but it's true like it does give you that that gratitude towards life and and the fact that it's it may be here and it may be not and that's that's the way it goes and you make use of what you've got kind of thing yeah and often patients i find who i've met who have been going through kind of very challenging times for themselves have indicated that how much gratitude they've come out of that with just realizing how much they have and how much they I guess have had in their lives I remember this one girl she was kind of in her 20s and was diagnosed with this like very devastating melanoma um, and she really only had like weeks to months to live and she was she wrote this this poem actually that it was expressing like how grateful she was like that she had like she's lived just the right amount of time because Mm -hmm. this is how much time she felt she had and she was grateful for that time that she's had and all that she's experienced in that time Mm -hmm. and so like how do people actually come to that realization for themselves and yeah yeah. I'm always amazed by that I'm so inspired by those patients that are going through these really difficult you know they're facing their mortality and they're facing a lot of suffering on the on the way to their mortality often 
and yet there's so much grace and there's yeah. so much mm-hmm. gratitude. And I just think, like, oh, man, I'm getting more out of this in my interaction with you than you're probably getting out of me. You know, I'm just learning so much from people. I remember I had one patient, and I wonder if it's the same patient as you, but I was very pregnant at the time. And I almost, I I felt guilty walking around being so pregnant with these young patients who, you know, don't get to experience that or whatever. And her and her mom were the sweetest things. Every Mm. time they're like, you look so cute. What are you having? (laughs) And all of this stuff. And I just... Yeah. I couldn't believe that they yeah. they were able to focus on anything other than her illness, and it was just the sweetest thing to be able to bond over something else, you know? I, I think that's a really good point as well, that <clears throat> patients who are going through this, they don't want to be talking about death and dying all the time, yeah. and they're very eager to be experiencing life every day. Right. And, mm-hmm. and that means sharing a joke, maybe learning something about our lives, maybe talking teaching. about qualities. Like it's exactly. fine. Like yeah. talking about outfits and like yeah. the latest celebrity gossip or whatever it yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. And I that. think I think yeah. that's a real key piece is is that these people just want to be treated as people. Mm-hmm. And and that's why I think people say with cancer are often very closed about it because they feel they're gonna be treated somehow differently. Yeah, if, if people cancer. know that they have yeah. cancer. And we get that chance to just interact with these people and be people with them as well as try to help them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you're reminding me, I will share, um, I think my husband would be perfectly okay with me saying, <laughs> like, when my father-in-law was passing away, my father-in-law just wanted to sit and have time with his loved ones. And he had a lot of loved ones. He was a big-hearted man. He had a lot of friends. He loved his grandkids so much and his, and his family. And, you know, sometimes there was those few, the handful of friends that would sit around his bed and cry and mm. <laughs> cry and and I was just thinking like he doesn't want no. that he's still living like he still wants to have meaningful conversations and he still has his dry sense of humor yeah. and you know and so I completely agree like they don't want to be in that headspace all the time yeah yeah mm-hmm. so like treating people like people as opposed yeah. to like a label or like they've already died right yeah yeah I worried about that a lot at first because I was kind of thrust into palliative care you know as a pharmacist you don't really get your choices you don't get a specialty um this was the position that was open so that's where I decided to go and I was really worried about it being this depressing sad smelly place to be honest mm-hmm. and the first time I walked in the unit it smelled like oatmeal cinnamon oatmeal it was beautiful <laughs> or we have the bread days and the bread days <laughs> bread days good. so good But I was really worried about that. But I found the more I am myself and the more I just talk to the patient like they're a normal person and try to crack my super cheesy jokes, they love it. Like, I, I, the less, like, I'm not tiptoeing around them. I'm not, you know, things like that. I find there's a lot more connection and they appreciate that a lot more. So how about the times when you have connected to a patient and they pass away and it is really difficult because you know as much as we're talking about the positives of these Mm -hmm. situations we do encounter tragedy almost every day we show up to work and we encounter I remember once an anesthesia resident who worked with me by Friday he just looked at me and he said every day someone has cried in front of me and this was not what he usually experienced Mm -hmm. in his work and he I found it hard to answer to him because we are witnessing tragedy. So, you know, I mean, we have talked about the 
positives of, of what it brings out in people, these tragic situations, but what other things do you guys do to try and deal with the fact that we, you know, some people call it secondary trauma. You're going to, right. in a way, a war zone every day and watching people uh, fall in some way. Mm-hmm. Keeping it real, Allison. Yep. <laughs> All right. I think as a pharmacist, I almost almost get to kind of pick and choose who I develop that relationship with. Um, I don't have to, you know, make those connections like you guys do. So I'm interested to hear. So you're getting you your, you're using your get out of jail free card. A little bit. I'm a pharmacist. Yeah, a little bit. Okay. So sometimes I use it as a defense <laughs> mechanism. I'll be honest. There are some that I really connect with and some that mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. for sure. Um, but I want to hear what you guys how you guys deal with it every single day because you're having those trying conversations every day (sighs) okay I guess I'll start it's been a process for me to learn what to do I actually had to go through probably a few cycles of burnout (laughs) to realize that what I was doing wasn't working but I think what I realized I have to do is maintain a semi-regular meditation practice so in the mornings you know even if it's 15 to 20 minutes that's that's as good as it gets for me pretty much and if I can do it daily ish uh, then that's good doing better than I am yeah good um spending time with family is really really important to me and and feeds me for sure um but I think also I realized that I like perhaps for me and this isn't for everybody but for me it comes in phases where I just have times where I need to step back a little bit in general like you know whether that's a few weeks or a few months and I just need to recharge I need to assess what's been going on um, with me emotionally, <laughs> mentally, with all the work, um, the toll that work has taken on me, and um, do a little bit of self-care. For me, yeah, like I say, meditation, family time, doing the things I love that are a bit more creative. I like to cook. I like to entertain. Social connections are very important for me. And exercise yeah. as well. I think it's important to recognize those times mm-hmm. when you need to back off. Mm-hmm. That's super important and hard to mm-hmm. hard to develop, I think. What about you, Amanda? Just having, I guess, a sort of mindset as well that this is what's happening for these people and I can't always necessarily change that, but maybe I can change their experience of it in some way and being happy with that as what I can contribute to their care um so kind of taking not having these kind of high expectations of myself that I'm going to go up be able to go in and like save the day and transform Mm -hmm. everything and make everything perfect for them because that's not realistic and that's not um probably in line either realistic or in line with what they actually want Mm -hmm. as well so kind of having that mindset and then I guess just talking with with friends about stuff and um I really enjoy going out to the mountains as, as well I feel that really energizes me yeah. so we have the yeah. mountains in our backyard yeah. so that's yeah. amazing yeah. yeah yeah how about you Allison you've been I, doing this forever mm, yeah forever and, forever <laughs> and as Amani says I think I've gone through periods of burnout myself uh I think the um, the volume of work that you do is important. I note that in our own palliative care group, uh, there's very few physicians that are actually doing it full time. Yeah. So some will uh, work in administration. Some are interested in research. Amanda does a lot in some have medical an ICU education. Hobby. <laughs> <laughs> but for cardiology hobby. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah, there's hobby. Yeah, so, hobbies. yeah, <laughs> lots of things where I think you, you know, you have to recognize that maybe it is something where we all need to take a break from it at times. And I'm even thinking of Brian, one of our colleagues, who I think has a month every year where he calls it, he paints his house. Yeah, I don't know about you. But he never actually paints the house. We don't know what it stands for. (laughs) I love it. Brian, if you're listening. (laughs) But it's a planned month a year where he is not working, and he has just recognized he needs to take a month away. I think that's so important to Mm -hmm. recognize it. Yeah. I mean, even just going beyond the palliative care just like as a mom or as a person just recognizing that you need the time right I think is so well, I key think, yeah this is a whole other conversation but I yes. think sometimes people wear you wear busy like an honor badge it's or something true. you know and you're a martyr and I think like I, I self-proclaimed Brene Brown fan where <laughs> yeah. where Definitely. I do think like vulnerability is strength and you have to ask mm-hmm. for help when you need it and, and all of that stuff so that aligns yeah. very well with palliative care, I think. Yeah. The other thing I just wanted to bring up was the use of humor, and we may have a future episode on this because uh, black humor is a very interesting subject in medicine. But often residents will say to me at their end of their two-week elective uh, or rotation with us that they were expecting it to be very heavy and difficult uh, emotionally, and they were surprised how much our team laughed and um, had uh, some humorous times, which have included everything on our unit, I think, from black humor to potlucks to... Dance parties! Dance That's parties. That's right. That started by the wise Allison. Yeah. Friday, Friday afternoon Ten minutes, dance parties. Dance hard. Done. Everybody goes. Fantastic. I've had residents say to me, um, you guys are a lot funnier than I thought you oh, would be. True. I don't know what that means. Like maybe his standard his bar was really low before he started. <laughs> maybe. I, I do think we're kind of funny <laughs> though. Like let's be honest. I, I think there's areas of medicine where medicine is considered very serious and in many, many ways it is. And I, I don't think patients come to their doctor for humor necessarily, but I think after you've addressed certain issues, you know, people are often looking for humor. And I've been surprised at the number of times where I've had a very serious conversation with a patient's family member Mm -hmm. that felt very heavy. And then the family member uh, walked out into the hallway and cracked a joke. Yeah, but I think it's like this emotional release. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't that they weren't feeling anything. It wasn't that they uh, were cold or didn't have a heart. It was simply that that's uh, one way humans yeah. deal with how you break the tension. Yeah, coping mechanism. Reality. Yeah, totally. Yeah, but we are. So we think we're funny. We do. Yeah, we should go on tour. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Did well, we cover it? I'll, I'll tell you. We will probably cut this, but. <laughs> Like one of the first days I came on the unit, we were doing a journal club and uh, one of our like higher up docs now was, was on the unit and we were talking, I can't even remember what the subject was, some sort of kind of dry journal club su- subject and Tracy, our rec therapist walked in. She's like, what are we talking about, Ted? And Ted told her this dry subject we were talking about and Tracy goes, hey, Ted. <laughs> That's when I knew that I had to work here. Now we have to have like an expletive like bleep out yeah. for you, Jody. I figure we can cut that. But it was hilarious. Like I knew that's when I knew. 
I was like, okay, I can, yeah. I can, We're not I that can, serious. I can hang I out can with work. these people. Yeah, yeah. I can work here. Yeah. <laughs> and now Tracy and I are best friends. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what about this? How do you think your palliative care work has helped you on a personal level? Like, I am pretty lucky with the husband I have. He was very practical and very, mm-hmm. like, sad. But mm-hmm. to be able to talk about that without, you know, I have other family members who are, like, will not talk about death and what's going to happen if such and such. And to be able to, I go home and I'm like, I would not want this. I would want this. Mm-hmm. He's like, all right. You know? So you're, like, doing your advanced care planning every day. Yeah, just to go home and tell a couple home. extra things. <laughs> He's not going to remember, but... Yeah, how it affects me. I used to, every two months, I would plan my funeral music. Oh, what? <laughs> What's your funeral that? music now? Um, Duran Duran. No, my, <laughs> I have a fantastic one. My favorite image of my funeral is everyone would be quite somber, and then, you know, I'd have chosen the music. And so Metric oh, would come coming on. to your funeral. Metric, yeah. that's so cool. And, yeah, and they'd be playing. I think it was all the guns and all the gold, and everyone would start just like bopping around in the it. room. So for the listeners out there, Allison is bopping her head right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have one. Maybe doesn't beat it, but my song is "The Queen Is Dead" by Frank Turner. Everyone oh. should listen to it. It's fantastic. Nice. And you want that at your That's going to be at my yeah. funeral. Yeah. But the interesting thing I wonder about how this affects me is I, I like to think that I'm prepared. Like, I do have oh, yeah. my advanced directive. It actually sits on my chair upstairs. So if, if I'm gone for a day, you just have to watch. <laughs> you know, walk in my room, you'll see it. Uh, I have my will done. <laughs> I have my funeral music planned out. And yet I still wonder... You know, the day when I, uh, you know, get that that message from mm-hmm. someone that I have a limited time, which I think, you know, they're saying now the majority of us, that's how we will die. We yeah. will be given some advance notice that we will die and we will have a chronic disease. You know, I wonder uh, how this will help us and, and whether we think these preparations that we make or this understanding mm-hmm. of the preciousness of life, like how much we really understand it given that we haven't actually yeah. gone or, through I it. Or like intellectually maybe, but do yeah. we really, really on an emotional Or are we going to be the like, absolute yeah. worst patients out of everybody? Mm. It's possible. It's very possible. possible. Very possible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you it's certainly true. hear of lots of doctors who, you know, receive a palliative diagnosis and just disappear. Like yeah. they, they don't look to medicine at all. I'm going <laughs> to be the person who's like diagnosed with a hangnail and be like, bring me palliative care. I need that. You haven't had mm-hmm. a hangnail yet? No, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of anything better. <laughs> How do you think it's affected you, Amanda? No, I guess just realizing that someone's life can end at any point. Um, my life could end at any point, and just trying to make the most of kind of every day or every moment that we have, I suppose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think it can be a gift in an odd way, but uh, a gift and a curse. A gift and a curse. But mostly a gift. We hope you enjoyed our episode today. We'd like to extend a special thank you to Zahid Damani for producing and editing our episodes, as well as for our beautiful website, Kasim Harani for the music, and Nishan Sharma for all of his support getting us up and running. Thank you also to our financial sponsor, Dr. Srini Chari. If you liked this episode, please let us know by clicking like and subscribing to our podcast. You can find It's Not All About Death on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform for podcasts. 
You can also find our episodes and connect with us anytime by visiting our website at itsnotallaboutdeath.com or on Instagram at itsnotallaboutdeath.